This is Top Floor, Episode 76. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 76. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast right up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. Derek Barker is one of those all-American, most likely to succeed guys that you knew in high school or college. Derek played football and built robots before heading to Harvard to do it all over again. In college, he co-founded Veritas Financial Group, among other businesses that kept him in beer money. And he graduated to a job at Goldman Sachs. After many years as a full-time real estate investor, Derek and his wife, Brittany Mosley, founded Nectar, a company that was named to this year's FocusWire Hot 25 list of travel startups. Today, Derek and I are going to talk about cash flow financing, football, and how to start investing in real estate. So Derek, in high school, you were pretty well-rounded. You played football. You started a robotics club and competed at state. I know that you were raised by a military father. Was it important to him that you do all of those activities or were you the one sort of driving that train? I come from a football family. I come from a sports family. Like my grandfather set a bunch of records in like the state of Washington, like in the, I don't know, like 40s or 50s or something. And then my dad played college sports and both sides of my family are very athletic. So sports were always really important. And a lot of the, you know, but a lot of it, football was really important to my dad. Outside of that, he just really supported what I was into and I was into a lot of things. So <laughs> it was important to him because it was important to me. You also started a financial literacy club in high school and then took that a little further in college, co-founding Veritas Financial Group. What was that organization about and what caused its demise? I came into Harvard at, in 06. And th- this time, a bunch of people were going from undergrad to Wall Street. Like, you know, internship at Goldman Sachs is like the, you know, the thing or BlackRock or whatever. But Harvard doesn't have undergraduate business degrees. So, you know, if you were young like me and my roommates and you wanted to learn about finance, there weren't a lot of ways. Like student organizations were geared towards recruiting and they were geared towards juniors and we were freshmen. And, you know, so um, so we came up with the idea. And, but people for, uh, right across the river at Harvard Business School, a lot of them just got finished working on Wall Street. And there were people coming to Harvard all the time to recruit. So we started an organization where the Harvard Business School students who worked in, in the field would teach undergrads different, like either markets, there are three tracks. There's like general business and then you split into like markets or sales and trading and like investment banking and real estate. And then the investment banks, uh, mostly it was investment banks and it was a couple of large uh, you know, buy, shop, buy side shops would come and judge the case competitions. And for them, it was a way to get like, you know, early recruiting with like a, a close group of like really highly motivated undergrads. Um, and they would pay early on like $10,000 an event and you get four of them. And, you know, it's a pretty good weekend. Um, <laughs> and that was really great up until 08. <laughs> 
Uh, uh, so yeah, and then you know after the after the it's great before the crash when they were really trying to recruit, recruit everybody. After the crash, they wouldn't give us any money. Like you know, uh, not name names, but like a couple of them said, "Hey, we'll send you some pamphlets." <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, the, that's all I got. Plus, we got in trouble with Harvard too. They didn't like us generating those type of returns. Let's put it that way. Interesting. So speaking of that crash. After a few years of trading at Goldman Sachs, you started a real estate investment company that was in business for about 11 years. What was the appeal of real estate specifically, especially so soon after the housing crisis? Yeah, I actually started the real estate company when I was still at Harvard with the same guys, my roommates, that started Veritas Financial Group with. Um, And really, we were looking at, okay, we are young. We have a long road ahead of us where, you know, things are going to go up or, you know, the world's going to end and the world's going to end, you know, at least we're like, you know, young and strong. We can like fend for ourselves, <laughs> like, you know, like go hunting in the woods or something. I don't know. <laughs> but if things don't, if things don't fall apart, then we might as well be something that's beat down. And so our thoughts were like, well, you know, a lot of these like derivatives and, you know, mortgage securities are, you know, we could do that. But in order to get an IST, you need to ISTA to trade, you know, um, uh, derivatives and you need a million dollars for that. And that was, so that was out. Uh, and the next thing was real estate. Real estate was pretty beat down. So we figured, hey, we might as well get in. And if worse comes to worse, can't go down that much further. And it's probably going to go up over time. Uh, so that's kind of how we ended up getting into real estate. And honestly, we were wrong. It did keep going down. Like when you bought our first property in 2010, <laughs> it kept going down to 2012. <laughs> But uh, but no, we did well, and the market went up. It was it worked. You know, the market going up can really um, help you get over a lot of the early mistakes. It definitely did for us. That's like the saying in the hotel business is revenue hides all sins. It's the same thing. Like the market can uh, erase your big mistakes early on. Yes, yes, yes. Today, you are CEO of Nectar, which you describe as providing cash flow based financing to experienced commercial real estate owners and managers. Can you talk a little bit about how it works? Yeah, of course. So, you know, we started Nectar because ultimately we spent a lot of years in the real estate business. We had a stabilized portfolio that was cash flowing, but it was really hard to get financing. Uh, you know, you can get debt financing, you get a mortgage, uh, but you, for a stabilized property, in order to buy it, you have to raise LP equity, which is incredibly dilutive. Um, and there is a, a place for equity, definitely, especially, you know, a lot of these things are really risky. It should be equity. You know, there should be equity for taking risk. But for stabilized cash flowing properties, those are just not that risky. Uh, so we felt like there should be some alternative. So we started Nectar, Brittany and I, to let people leverage the existing portfolio that is stabilized and cash flowing um, in order to use that capital to do whatever they need to buy another property, put up a down payment for another property, finish a CapEx project, to, be, to furnish a property. You've got people buy other management companies. Uh, but real estate is a capital intensive business. And for people who have current existing properties with current cash flow, we want to be able to provide fast and flexible capital for them uh, so that they can leverage their cash flow to continue to build, continue to grow, and to continue to uh, to dominate where their, their local markets. 
Can you get a little deeper about the differences between the types of financing? So maybe draw a line between cash flow financing, equity investment, and debt financing for folks who are just getting started or aren't familiar. Perfect. Yeah. So I'll start with debt and I'll go from there. So the for the cheapest source and most plentiful source of capital for real estate is the mortgage, where you put a lien on the property, which means, and all that means is that if you don't pay, they take the property. And it's gonna be it's gonna be the cheapest source of capital out there. Right now, it's still a seven to ten percent probably for a mortgage. Uh, back in, you know, before uh, the pandemic or right after the pandemic, you got down to like, like three, four percent. Um, but that is, you know, that's where you're going to get 60 to 80 percent of the capital to buy a property. It, you see that is pretty restrictive. Uh, the bank is going to underwrite, you know, really closely. They're looking at the asset value because that's their collateral ultimately. Um, and they're going to want you to use the capital that they give you for that property specifically. Um, so that is how mortgage works. And so it's the most restrictive, but it's also the cheapest source of capital. Also takes a long time to get. The next you know, most common source of capital is equity. Um, and there are different types of equity. In real estate, a lot of times there's LP equity or, or limited partners, where you get a style of investor who will, you know, say a, a mortgage company will give you 75% of the cash to buy the property. Um, the LP equity will give you that 25%. And then they get 100% of the returns up to a point, let's say 8 or 10%. And then they get 70% or 80% of the returns after that. So it's incredibly dilutive and it's expensive capital. It's very expensive capital. But it does get you, all, you know, they are taking the most risk because if the property value goes down, the LP equity, the equity gets hit first and then the debt. For what we provide is cash flow based financing. So, you know, like LP equity, like a mortgage, is tied specifically to a property. They give you money, that money has to go to that property and it's used for that property. Uh, our financing, we're not tied to your property. What we're saying is we're looking at either we're tied to an entity. It can be a property owning entity, be a management entity. It could be a holding company that has several properties. We're looking at how much cash flow is that entity generating. And then we'll give you one to five years worth, or we'll let you borrow against one to five years of that cash flow effectively. Um, and so, and you can get that capital and you can do anything you want with it. You can use it to buy another property. It doesn't have to stay with that portfolio. Um, you can use it in that portfolio if you'd like. Um, but the, the idea is it's not attached, it's not a lien on the property. So you don't have to compete with a mortgage. You don't have to worry about, you know, letting your mortgage company know. Um, it's uh, something that is something it's where you can effectively get an advance to you get your net cash flow in advance. One to five years of net cash flow in advance for a cost that you can use for whatever purpose you need. Why is that type of financing a particularly good fit for short-term vacation rental property management companies. That seems like that's kind of your niche or your sweet spot. Why is that? Yeah, it is because people in the vacation rental space, the short-term rental space, they generate a lot of cash flow. They, you just you generate more cash flow than long-term rentals. That just is the case. 
And banks don't quite get the short-term rental market quite yet. So you have people who have very strong, strong cash flowing portfolios that have pretty low leverage because banks don't give as much leverage to short-term rentals. And that's where we can come in and we can provide the capital that you need based on your cash flow. So like, whereas a bank isn't going to look at your cash flow, they're looking at the asset value, um, which overly penalizes short-term rentals. We're cash flow-based uh, financers. So if you're if you have great cash flow and you you have low leverage, and which means that you have to come up with more equity, which equity is the most expensive part of the capital set. This is nothing more expensive than equity. So we we can fit there. We can like provide you capital based on your cash flow, so you can use less equity, whether it's your equity or a third party investor's equity. You you know you, you use less of it means that you get more of the profits. You get more upside, uh, and you get. Um, you know, and your your dollar can stretch over more properties, uh, so you can grow your portfolio, a stronger portfolio. When you were talking about, you know, that it's based on between one and five years worth of cash flow, or you can borrow against one to five years of cash flow, it made me think about the last five years and how something kind of crazy happened in that period of time. So. How do you adjust or underwrite for demand impacting events like a global pandemic, which I understand is a maybe maybe a black swan event or a recession, stuff like that? Is that built into your model or was did you take a major hit as a result of that over the last few years? No. Well, firstly, uh, in, our, in modern times, black swan events have been having more and more frequent. And one thing we, I'm, you know, Nectar, we're building Nectar to be, uh, to be around for a long time. And I know for a fact that there will be additional black swan events, uh, whether it's next month or 10 years from now or 20 years from now, it will happen. It's going to happen. That's the care. I'm, I'm very confident of that. And we underwrite taking that into consideration. Uh, so one thing that we look at, and that's just a pretty hard, um, a uh, hard line for us is you have to be able to withstand a 10 to 15% revenue decline and still be able to make our payments. If you're, if, which means that you have to have a certain amount of margin. Uh, you have to have you know, good margins for us to be a good fit. For every single deal that we do, we say, okay, we stress test. Can you withstand 15% revenue decline? Okay, if you can, then we can continue the conversation. If you can't, then, you know, there, sometimes there are other things that we can you know, look at, but you know, we're typically not going to be as good a fit. And the reason is because during the pandemic, we saw across the board about a 15 percent revenue decline. Uh, some markets, not so much. Some markets were more. Um, but over that year, there was about a 15 percent revenue decline. And so, you know, we want we want to be able to. If there's a big, if there's a big event, big revenue decline, we require cash reserves, so your cash reserves should get you through. Um, and we also just you know built in that contingency, you know, because ultimately it doesn't help anybody for you know for uh, things to be good until things are bad, and for you to not be able to pay. So I was going to ask, but I think you answered it. That fifteen percent comes from the average over the last few years, or is that sort of a rule of thumb for sensitivity analysis for any type of lending? No, that's just we looked specifically at twenty twenty, and we said, okay, well, 
had we had the portfolio that we have now, would we have made it? Uh, you know, and, and what we and what we what we saw was well, if we have that fifteen percent revenue cushion, then yes, you know, we, and and then we have you know we require cash reserves kind of on top of that. That's really interesting. Yeah. So ultimately, we have the benefit, and it's a blessing that this happened. Firstly, it was great for the short-term revenue because it's the expanded industry is is grown tremendously, and honestly, it was you know, 2021, 2022 were really good years. Uh, for the short-term rental industry, but also it just gave us a case study where we can look and say, well, what happens if there's like this something that is particularly like hitting this industry? What does the market look like? And because we have that data, uh, we use it to inform our underwriting because we want to, you know, we know that over the next five years, maybe, maybe it's maybe it's only a thirty percent chance that we have a big shock like that over the next five years. But that's big. Like thirty percent is a big probability, and we want to we want to survive the thirty percent uh, chance that there's a, some kind of shock that's similar. This sounds like a good time to take a break. When we come back, Derek is going to give us some tips for how to get started in real estate investing, and tell a story about a closing dinner that was perhaps a little too liquid. Be right back. Top Floor is sponsored in part by the Hunter Hotel Investment Conference, taking place March 21st through 23rd at the Atlanta Marriott Marquis. Hunter brings together the hotel industry's most influential leaders and investors for networking opportunities and insightful sessions on hospitality trends. Deals are built on meaningful relationships, and Hunter is where these relationships are made and deals get done. For more information, visit hunterconference.com. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from every episode of Top Floor with a couple of really specific tips that they can try either in their businesses or in their lives. So what are your tips for someone who wants to get started in real estate investing? What's like the first two things to do? Probably the first thing is get pre-qualified for a mortgage, you know, get pre-qualified, you know, just know where you stand, especially if you're trying to get into the single family space. Uh, you need to know, and even if you don't get, you know, even if you get denied, and you know, at least you know where, where things stand and what you need to do. I'd also say... Reach out like brokers and real estate agents. They have a lot of information. Get on their distributions. See the deals that are out there. Uh, try underwriting them. Um, you know, take a shot. <laughs> you know, take a shot at one. See if you can put a deal together. Uh, it's not easy to put a deal together, and you might not. You're probably not going to get your first one. But the act of going and underwriting and making an offer and working and get the debt in place and doing all that stuff is super valuable. So I'd say like. Get to know the brokers, get on the distribution list. So see the deal flow, uh, get pre-qualified, and then actually like shoot some shots. <laughs> you know, go you know, go for it. One of the biggest complaints about the short-term rental industry is that investors are pricing renters out of affordable housing. What do you think are ways that a real estate investor or short-term rental host can mitigate that affordable housing issue or can they? Yeah. I mean, the way that we human beings use space is changing, has changed. It's not stagnant. It's not stay the same. And it never does and never has. 
Like we use space different. And that's why short-term rentals exist. And that's why they make more revenue because that's the way that we humans want to use space. The way to get to fix the affordable housing challenge is supply. It's like making more supply. It's not really restricting um, you know, what's going on, like what people want to do. Like people, you know, that 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 creates more market inefficiency. You know, what creates more affordable housing? It's just more housing. Buying and renovating properties is the way that you do it. Building new properties, you know, that's how you do it. Making more density, uh, taking, you know, large houses and turning it into a quadruplex, you know, like that, that's the type of thing. Uh, that that I've that you know I've done in the past, uh, and that you know ultimately will that's the only way to get um, to do something about affordable housing, um, you know. But yeah, like just because you're responding to market dynamics um, by providing the short-term rentals, which is the way that humans want to use space currently, um, like to me, that's not that is not the big factor when it comes to affordable housing. The big factor is that the way that we've structured the market, largely driven by policy, you know, like you know, that that's has a that has such a huge impact on the housing market. Uh, you know, the majority of housing is financed by the government through the GSEs, Fannie Freddie. Um, you know, the majority of housing, all of housing has to be permitted. They say you can build this and has to be built this way, and all this stuff is good. Uh, but there are a lot of it's the complicated market, <laughs> you know, that that uh, gets us to where uh, to where we are, and like ultimately, had like putting more units into the market is what's going to increase supply. Got it. Okay, shifting gears. How do you and Brittany, when you're traveling with your three daughters or when you're not traveling with them, how do you decide whether you're going to stay in a hotel or in a short-term rental? That's the interesting question that Brittany knows the answer to. (laughs) Uh, um, Let's see. It probably has to do with where we're going and what makes sense? We're going to have a lot of people. We typically stay in an Airbnb. If it's a quick trip with just our family, um, and we're probably going to stay in a hotel. But I don't know because we do a little bit of both. I, I, I don't know. But like you know, typically like we go to you know our kids are young and they break things, they mess things up. <laughs> <laughs> so like a lot of times we're like, look at the Airbnb. It's like we would love to stay here. Uh, here then you know. That nice picture isn't going to look that that way when we leave. (laughs) That's funny. You know, most people say that, that it really is dependent on the purpose of the trip. And it's interesting because travelers say that, right? Like, it just depends. It depends on what I'm doing and where I'm going. But in hotel executive speak... There are still many, many of those folks who believe that it is a completely different customer, and it's just an absolute head scratcher to me. So I think it used to be. I think there was once upon a time where it was a completely different customer. I think what you've seen for is like that, two weeks. <laughs> well, or three years, three, four yeah, yeah, years, yeah. Maybe, you know. Because uh, I grew like when I graduated from college, was not staying at hotels. I was staying at Airbnbs. I was young and I was traveling, I was going to places with my friends. I was always at an Airbnb. I wasn't a hotel customer, like really, to be honest. Um, 
and now I've, you know, you know, things have changed and now I'm kind of both. Um, and there are people who like my dad was not an Airbnb customer. You know I'm saying? He was a hotel customer. Now he's kind of both, you know? So I feel like, you know, over time as Airbnb has gone mass market, as the pandemic happened and people were exposed to it, uh, as people have professionalized. So like, you're not like sleeping on somebody's like air mattress. You're like, you have a, like a real hospitality experience. It's becoming more and more the same customer. Agreed. We have reached the fortune telling portion of our show. So now's the time when you're going to look into your crystal ball and predict the future for me. What is a prediction that you have about the future of real estate investing? I predict that in the future, more capital will be available for smaller operators. Uh, There will be more flexible capital for smaller operators. Right now, I think we're in a situation where a lot of institutional operators have a lot more access to capital, uh, and so they like are pushing into like the traditional real estate, you know, mom and pop or professional operator or local or regional operator. I think that there's going to be more and more capital for the smaller local or regional operator, and those are the people who do a better job. If you look at the Airbnb reviews, like way better for the local and regional smaller players, smaller and mid-sized players. Um, and that's the same in like multifamily, same like a lot of different things. Uh, you know, they just don't have the direct feedback of a star rating. Uh, and I think that capital is going to figure it out. Okay. If you could wave your magic wand and change one thing about the process of travel, whether that's the flight, the lodging, or something else, what would it be? Carbon footprint. I, I would like just right now, travel is just so, so hard on our planet that we all count on to survive. That we all like, you know, this is this is ours. This earth is ours. You know, like we run it, and we can. And, and its beauty is for us to preserve or for us to destroy. And you know, if I could raise my wave my magic wand, that's what I do. I have it. I have travel be more infused into like the environment, and you know, and, and not uh, you know, pumping up against it and pushing it out. Do you think that? the solution to carbon neutral travel or reducing the carbon footprint of travel is going to be driven by travel companies, by travelers, or something else? It's going to be entrepreneurs uh, finding business cases in innovation to do things that are better for the environment and that generate a profit. Or it's going to be you know, it's going to be government supporting those entrepreneurs years and years later. <laughs> That's what I think. I don't know that. I mean, this this isn't you know sort of a value judgment necessarily, but I don't know that we can trust existing travel companies to lead that charge because they have absolutely no skin in that game. They have nothing to gain by changing their practices, especially if they're more expensive. So I agree with you. All right. What's next for you? And what is next for Nectar? Well, those are big questions. What's next for Nectar is we want to be, we want to dominate the short-term rental industry. We want to work with the top best operators out there, the people who are going to be the names who are dominating the future of the short-term rental industry. We want to find them, identify them. We want to arm them with capital that's fast and flexible and reasonable and with data 
and with like whatever they need to go and take over the industry, you want to be there and be a good partner. Uh, and we want to like, you know, yeah, we want to like arm the rebels against the big institutions. We love institutions. Okay. I love you. <laughs> like, don't, don't come for me. <laughs> uh, you know, but you know, the future, the, the future is going to be driven by the upstarts, not the incumbents. Uh, we want to be there and we want to be you know, full in supporting them. And we want to like, you know, you know, professionalize the industry and be there to finance that professionalization. And then we want to do that in, every, in like niche after niche after niche in the real estate market. Uh, so, you know, there really, there are all kinds of like everything around this built environment from the billboards that you pass by on the way to the parking garage that you park your car in the office building and like everything in between wherever you're going to get your lunch, all that stuff, uh, you know, where the food comes from, that's it. That, you know, that all that is real estate it all has to finance and they all have the same thing. So that's, that's next for nectar, like broad scale, large, you know, large, largely. I want to make it super easy. I want to make it super fast for people who are performing and who are doing a good job to get capital. Uh, for me, what's next? You know, uh, I guess I'm having the baby soon. So uh, yeah, that's nice for me. <laughs> Congratulations! Oh, thank you, thank you. Excited about it. That's amazing. I hope it's another girl. <laughs> uh, it probably is. Yeah. My track record. <laughs> awesome. Okay, folks, before we tell Derek goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Derek, what is a story you would only tell on the loading dock? Once upon a time, I was an apartment guy, flip apartments. And uh, me and my uh, partners, you know, who were went to college with, we were uh, pretty young. We had to be 24, 25 to close our first big deal. It was like a three apartment complex portfolio. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't big. So it was like maybe 20 something, you know, $20 million, something like that. That's big. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was definitely big for us at the time. And we had closing dinner and the closing dinner was... Uh, vigorous and <laughs> vivacious. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so we went back, we went back to an apartment complex that was owned by actually one of our partners uh, who was like, you know, in, you know, older you know, family. And we went and one of our, one of our partners has to like, you know, left to take a call from, uh, from, you know, you know, I don't know, somebody, I think it ended up being one of the investors and we all left, went to sleep and, uh, and got locked out. And scale, so he ended up scaling the like the pool of the apartment. He was locked outside. It's the middle of winter. Oh <laughs> and, no! Yeah, and had to like yeah, jump down, broke both of his feet, shattered his ankles, and all that <laughs> all that stuff. Yeah, it was it was, it was like really. And you crazy. guys weren't answering your texts because of the vigorous dinner that you had just enjoyed, perhaps. Yes. yes and by dinner, vigorous. we mean. Uh, liquid dinner, yes. <laughs> lots, lots of you know, very, very high ratio of liquid to solid. Let's say. <laughs> uh, so I woke up in the morning to like you know ten calls, and yeah, I, I don't even know how, how he made it. He ended up having to go to the hospital and everything. Oh yeah. my gosh! It was, it was really terrible. So uh, long story short, is like now after closing. Firstly, <laughs> we don't do closing dinners like that anymore. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was I've outgrown that at this point. But from now on, it's just no no cell phones, no calls after a, a closing dinner. Once you're in the closing dinner, you've, you've won. 
it's over. Cell phones go away. <laughs> it's safer for everybody. It's safer for everybody. <laughs> oh, that is so funny. Derek Barker, thank you so much for being here. I know our listeners got a great education about cash flow financing and all things real estate investing. And I really appreciate you riding up to the top floor. Awesome. Thanks for having me. It was a great conversation. Thank you for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 76. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 